Welcome to Flash Forward. I'm Rose, and I'm your host. Flash Forward is a podcast about the future. Every week, we take on a different possible or not-so-possible future scenario. Every episode, we start with a little trip to the future, and then we zip back to today to talk with experts about how that future might really go down. Got it? Great. This week, let's start in the year 2075. There was once a time when the earth was covered in trees. They were among the most magnificent of all living things on the planet, producing much of the oxygen we relied on to breathe. We loved our trees. Documentary footage from the time speaks of them glowingly. among the most magnificent of all living things. Some are the largest organisms on Earth, dwarfing all others, and these are the tallest of them all. But perhaps, as often happens with humans, we loved them too much. For we not only loved them for their air and their beauty, we also loved them for their insides. We used trees as a material for many things. Furniture, buildings, boats. We ground wood into pulp and pressed them into thin sheets. To make a sheet of paper, the vat man plunges a wooden mold into the pulp. As he lifts out the mold, he shakes it to even out the pulp. Water pours out, leaving only fibers caught on the mold surface. Those sheets were then used for everything from disposable toilet paper to great books. I'm from Procter & Gamble, and this new gentle bathroom tissue, Charmin. Okay, come on in. It's floating in the air. Charmin's got air cushions. Air cushions? They make Charmin gentle. You want to see them? We called this substance paper. And for thousands of years, it was crucial to the way that humans lived. <laughs> I remember my grandmother, uh, she had all these paper books, the old kind with the individual pages and hard leathery covers. And they smelled really weird, but we used to take them off the shelves and flip through the pages. She used to like to read to us from the books and you know, we humored her mostly. Whenever someone used to die, we would know if they were a certain age that we were going to have to deal with paper when we cleaned out their stuff. Younger folks never paper, but the older ones, this was a long time ago, but the older ones would always keep it. You get magazines and books and letters and all that, all on paper. We had to wear gloves just to handle it, since it could cut you if you weren't careful. Slowly, as humans became more voracious and more numerous, the demand for paper grew. During the great malware blackout, when coordinated attacks brought down the world's digital devices for nearly a year, we turned even more to this trusty, woody substance. Paper manufacturers struggled to keep up with demand. We used to get tickets for how much we could use. 
one ticket per 10 ply of whatever it was. My mom really liked this super thick toilet paper, and she would use the whole family's tickets just to get a single roll. My sister and I would have to borrow tickets from our uncle so we could do our schoolwork. The run on paper took its toll. Forests became slim and then rare. Today, as humans expand to nearly all reaches of the globe, it's hard to imagine using our few remaining trees for writing or reading. But history is full of quirks. Okay, so in this future, we no longer use paper. Everything is digital. Now, on the show, we've tackled a huge range of futures. We've talked about things that are extremely likely, like antibiotic resistance. And we've also talked about things that are never going to happen, like space pirates dragging a second moon to Earth for some reason. And when I started working on this episode, I assumed that this future was more on the likely end of the spectrum. Maybe not in a few years, but eventually we'll probably just stop using paper, right? Well, pretty much everyone I talked to said no. It's fanciful. It's, it's, it's a probably the likelihood of a paperless society is about as likelihood as the moon uh, pirates uh, scenario that your show featured um, you know, previously. That's Michael Macon. He's the president and CEO of Printing Industries of America. Printing Industries of America is the national voice of the printing industry in the United States. It's a $150 billion a year uh, in- industry that has uh, 28,000 uh, commercial printing facilities all across the United States. So it's a part, it's the, it's the quintessential small business. There is a printer in virtually every single city, town, Uh, all across the United States. So it's Michael's job to represent and protect people working in the printing industry. And Printing Industries of America isn't the only organization out there trying to keep printing alive. In 2014, a group called Two Sides launched a campaign arguing that companies who advertised paperless billing as green were violating guidelines set by the Federal Trade Commission. And they actually got over 20 companies to stop advertising their paperless billing options as environmentally friendly. And this is just one of the big arguments that the paper industry makes against abandoning paper. I think you would have a, a cataclysmic environmental disaster. Because if you relied solely on technology uh, uh, and on digital technology, and, and which does not have the same environmental recyclability or, or ability to, to be um, absorbed in our uh, atmosphere as far as CO2 emissions are concerned, as far as landfill is concerned, you would have an absolutely unmitigated catastrophe. Now, it's hard to make blanket statements about whether paper or digital is better for the environment. Both have their upsides and downsides, and for both, there are better and worse ways to use and recycle the materials. And it's true that most people don't realize how environmentally unfriendly their digital devices are, from mining rare metals to the e-waste that these machines create once they become obsolete. But according to Michael, moving away from paper isn't just a bad move environmentally. It's a bad move for all sorts of reasons. And he really thinks it's just never going to happen. I think it's, I think it's really a, a cliché. Uh, I mean, the calls for a paperless society have been... For decades, I, I, you may remember the Wang Computer Company. The Wang Computer Company was the first to prophesize that in 2000, the year 2000, we would be living in a paperless society. Of course, the only thing that we were living in in 2000 was a Wangless 
society because that computer company went out of business. And so it rather infuriates those of us who work in the space because we are talking about 700, 800,000 hardworking men and women and their families being supported by this, by this uh, community. And to have irresponsible statements like that is just not um, cool, as it were. I mean, it's, let's be real. It's, it's, we are never going to live in a paperless society. Now, I think I probably know what you are thinking. Obviously, the president and CEO of an organization that represents the printing industry is going to say this. Why would he say, oh, yes, I think we should move to a paperless society. That seems like a great idea. He would not say that. But Michael is actually not the only expert I talked to who said that they didn't think paperlessness was in our future. No, we're not. There's no evidence. We are. In fact, paper consumption in offices continues to go up. And I can say that authority because just my last job before I went on this Skype call with you was to do a report for the paper industry on that. <laughs> so, but it only seems to go up in uh, – it seems to be correlated with uh, gross national product and it doesn't seem to be related to anything else, anything to do with the introduction of new shared networks or – the latest machine learning tools. It just seems to be crude. That's Richard Harper. He's a researcher at Microsoft and the co-author of a book called The Myth of the Paperless Office. Now, Richard has spent a lot of time thinking about paper and whether or not offices will ever actually go paperless. In the book, Richard and his co-author, Abigail Sellen, trace the phrase paperless office back to the 1970s when Xerox founded a research group called PARC, P-A-R-C. And PARC was working on networked systems, ways for offices to talk to each other over all kinds of digital networks. But to push networks forward, they felt like they had to push something else out. One of the things I think your, your show is partly about is myths. Um, sometimes myths are made as a way to justify something else. So when Xerox was in building network systems, they had to come up with a reason for building these network systems. And they, one of the reasons they came up with was that there's a devil in the, in the workplace and the devil's paper. The paper is a devil for all sorts of reasons. One, it's conspicuous consumption. Two, it's physically burdensome. Three, it symbolizes a way of doing business and thinking, which must be old. So therefore, if you, if you were to achieve success and reimagine the office and make it all digital, then clearly when you do that, the, the old devil will go, yeah? But what Richard and Abigail found in their research was that paper is, in fact, not the devil, and it's not going anywhere. And they found that most people don't want paper to go away. Richard gave one example, brochures and magazines. One of the things they've discovered is that when brochures arrive, they're not, they're not handled straight away. They're kind of flung in places, and the places they're flung, flung to are like on the couch or beside the couch are places where at some future time the person bumps into them when they are ready to be bumped into, when they make themselves available to be indolent and when they're searching for something to do. So there's a sense in which you can put paper in those little nooks and crannies that you go to naturally in that ebb and flow of your domestic life. When when you get there, you are in a mood. Say, oh, look, let's have a look through that. Let's do some online shopping. And that's kind of a property of paper that it, it, it finds itself... Um, washed up in places where people let themselves be washed up because they want to be indolent and charmed and confronted with content and images. And he says that this is contrasted by how people shop online. Yeah, and you know, when you're online shopping, what you tend to, you, 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 you sort of feel encouraged to be in a, you know, like a motor race to get to the end quickly. You don't go shopping to do it quickly. You go shopping for an experience. So how does 
a search engine optimized for speed deliver the right sort of experience it should it should it, it should be designed to let you linger to let you do the window shopping to let you um dither to let you gaze to let you wonder pointlessly at things you know you're never going to buy yeah now i have to say that i have not looked at a catalog to buy something in a very long time like, I actually can't remember the last time I looked at a catalog to shop. I do most of my shopping online. And I actually feel like I do a lot of browsing and perusing of things that I won't buy online. So maybe this is changing if I am any indication. Or maybe I'm just totally missing out on the wonder of catalogs. I don't know. Coming up, we're going to talk about what we know about how reading digitally and reading on paper might be different, as well as how to actually store all of this digital stuff that we will be making. But first, a quick word from our sponsors. So we've just been talking about a future without paper. And one thing that I always wonder about going digital is just how we are going to store and keep track of everything. I can barely keep the files on my own computer in some kind of logical order, but when we're all working digitally, how do we preserve and archive anything? Of course, there are already archivists and historians working on this exact question. There are some people who really want to touch that paper um, that has that person's signature on it. But on the other hand, if you know, a digital copy of it where you're able to sit down at your computer and actually zoom in and look even more closely at that document than you could just going into a reading room, you know, that can be eye-opening as well. That's Linda Schmitz-Fuerig. She's the electronic archivist for the Smithsonian, and her job is to preserve everything digital that the Smithsonian creates. I deal with all the born digital material that's being generated across the institution. Uh, So we're talking about digital images, word processing, um, digital audio, video, all the Smithsonian websites and social media accounts. We try to capture most of those as well. One of the nice things about paper is that it generally stays readable for a long time. But when you're talking about digital files, the format things are in can pretty quickly become obsolete and impossible to read. You probably could not access information on a floppy disk if I gave you one, or open a VisiCalc file if I sent you one. And this is something that Linda has to deal with all the time. Um, And we have equipment where we are able to still read these old um, pieces of media, thankfully. Um, So we're we're keeping older operating systems around as well as devices to access some of this. So Linda spends a lot of time trying to make sure that files are in a format that people will be able to read for a long time. But there's also no guarantee that PDF or WAV files will stand the test of time. She might have to convert them all in 10 years to some new format that we haven't even invented yet. And with paper, that's not as much of an issue. Then there's the question of storage. So we have about 7 terabytes of data currently, and that's going to continue to grow. And that's just for the stuff that the Smithsonian Institution generates. Every year, the U.S. Library of Congress adds about 5 terabytes of data to their collection. Ancestry.com says it has about 600 terabytes of genealogical data. And Facebook says that it scans about 105 terabytes of data every half an hour. We're generating more data right now than ever before, 
And none of it is really stored or archived in a regular way. And the idea of having to manage all of that, let's just say that Linda doesn't think that we're quite ready. Oh, boy. I, uh, it's kind of scary to think about that. But Linda, like everyone else I talk to, doesn't think we actually have to worry about that anytime soon. You know, there's people who still enjoy a good physical book, like myself. I can't imagine that's really going away. Um, and just think about, you know, the world of art. Do you really want to, you know, view everything digitally? As opposed to, you know, going to a museum and, and actually seeing something that somebody painted or sketched. And the data actually does show that Linda is right. People do enjoy a good book, a good physical book. I can't tell you how many people said what they like most about print is the smell of the book. This is 20-year-olds? Come on. It's true. How much they talked about the feel of the book, of, of liking to turn pages or put their fingers between uh, the clump of pages they finished and the ones they still have to read. That's Naomi Barron. She's a professor of linguistics at American University and the author of Words on Screen, The Fate of Reading in a Digital World. And she's done a whole lot of research on how people read and engage with things on screens versus on paper. And her research shows that people really do like paper. In the research that I've done on more than 400 university students around the world, I said, what is the medium for reading on which you concentrate best? 92% said print. Hmm. This is them speaking, not me. This is digital millennials from ages 18 to 26. I asked them if the cost were the same, because cost is often what is driving a switch to digital. Not choice, but cost. I asked, if cost were the same, would you prefer for your schoolwork to read in print or to read digitally? I asked the same question about reading for pleasure. 87% said, if cost were the same, I would rather read in print for schoolwork. They said this. They could have said anything they wanted. 81% said, if cost were the same, they'd rather do their pleasure reading in print. These are the digital millennials. These are the ones who I can't get to stop texting in my classes. <laughs> They're on their devices, but if you ask them, they'll give you a very different story from the ones we assume they will give. But the future doesn't always take into account what we like. So what if we did wind up in a world without paper? Maybe some beetle decimates all the paper trees, or some dictator says, no more paper. It turns out there's a lot we don't actually know about the differences between reading on screens and reading on paper. Some research suggests that retention rates are lower when we read digitally, but other work suggests that it's about the same. We do know a few things, though. Barron's research shows pretty clearly that with digital files, you don't revisit things as much as you do with a physical copy of a thing. I've asked students, for example, uh, how often do you go back and reread things, if they're digital or if they're in print? And I asked this about reading for pleasure. I asked about reading it for schoolwork. You reread, or they reread, much less if it were digital, because it's out of sight, out of mind. There's an attitude that says, zip, it's gone, because that's what the medium does for us. I mean, it's Snapchat on steroids. And some authors have argued that when everyone is reading on their devices, books will have to become shorter, with simpler storylines and less complex narratives. 
We also know that in general we are reading and writing more words than ever, but in different formats. So less books and letters, and more emails and text messages. So if you were a Victorian, to be in English terms, or if you were a nineteenth-century、um, robber baron, as you were in New York, if you were to go into your, to jump from that your organisation then to organisation today, you would be shocked at how much communication is done. And you think, how have my organisational notes, for example, become such contagion that each morning I spend hours and continuously fragmented day dealing with those things? So in the future, without paper, this trend may continue: shorter and shorter missives, shorter and shorter books, more serialized narratives broken into chunks. You know, it's good enough for Charles Dickens. It's good enough for us. And more images, more emoji, more gifs. So yes, I think an awful lot of what we're doing online is having some influence on the way we write, but a lot of it is number one, shorten, and number two, do something that's attention-getting. And if you want to get my attention, don't give me two very long paragraphs. Now, Michael, the printing industries guy, he has a really doomsday vision of this future. You may have a paperless society, but they may be a bunch of idiots. <laughs> that don't understand, you know, how to communicate and and have no,、uh, you know, formal knowledge or or cannot retain anything. They'd be like a, you know, a, a pouring water in a in a sieve. Probably it would probably be a perfect example of looking at、uh, a walk the Walking Dead because you'd have all these dumb people walking around、uh, in a in a catastrophic state in in garbage because that's what you'd have. Now I don't think that's quite right, although I do enjoy his enthusiasm. But one thing I did ask Naomi is what she thinks we should do to prepare for this future. Let's say that we knew it was coming. We had two years before paper was gone or banned or whatever it is. How do we get ready for that? And she said that we need to figure out how to focus again. There are various kinds of software that are out that cut off the internet connection while we're working on a digital device. And you block yourself from the internet for an amount of time you set. Excuse me, you could have just not plugged into the internet. But we can't make ourselves do this. Why do we need to do this? Because these are devices we're used to interacting with, and since computer, since internet access is now so ubiquitous, we're always、uh, used to having other kinds of、uh, activity, or call it distraction, available. Until we figure out that one. We're going to be in deep trouble if we actually want people to seriously read and think and contemplate. In this paperless future, when we sit down to read something, we need to figure out how to just read that thing, not check email or Facebook or Twitter every few minutes or respond to every buzzing notification that we get. And that's going to be really hard, I think, because these devices that we have that we're using to read things. They're devices that are designed to be connected, and they're full of apps that want our attention all the time. Before I got a smartphone, I didn't have any trouble. Now that I have a smartphone, it's harder for me to ignore messages. I, you know, even I'd have to turn the whole thing off, and then it takes forever to turn back on again. So I just, you know, put it on vibrate, but then I hear the vibration.、Uh, and we're human beings, and until we figure out how to be like Marie Curie. Who could probably have, you know, a team of 500 horses march in front of her, and she wouldn't hear it? We're going to have to solve this problem, and that's what I see as being our biggest challenge.
a bunch of things we did not get into in this episode, like the fact that paper is used for a lot more than just books and magazines and things to read. It's in the grocery store, it's used as labels, it makes up our toilet paper and posters and the boxes that we ship things in, it's used for money and for cooking and for research and all sorts of other stuff. And if you go to flashforward.com, I will have a bunch of links to more on those areas of paper, as well as links to things that we mentioned in the show. Flash Forward is part of the Boing Boing podcast family. It's produced by me, Rose Eveleth. Special thanks this week to Casey Broughton, Stephen Grenade, and Matt Weller. The episode art is by Matt Lubchansky. The intro music is by Asura, and the outro music is by Broke for Free. If you have thoughts on this future with or without paper, or you want to suggest a future topic for the show, you can send those by email or by voice memo to info at flashforwardpod.com, or you can call us and leave a voicemail at 347-927-1425. You can also find us on all kinds of social media like Facebook and Twitter and now Reddit. Links to all of that stuff will be on our website. And if you like the show and would like for it to continue happening, you can help make that a reality by donating. Head to patreon.com slash for more on what you get as a donor and to pitch in to keep the show going. My microphone is dying, the one that I am talking into right now, and I need to buy a new one. So now is an especially good time for you to give money. If you can't donate, that's cool, I understand. Leave a nice review on iTunes or tell a friend about the show. That is really helpful. Okay, that's all for this future. Come back next week and we'll travel to a new one.